Welcome to Heart Yoga Radio. This is another podcast in our interesting time series, and this one deals with the rapidly developing Cold War on China. In this podcast, I hope to give you a, a reasonably accurate picture of what's going on at the moment uh, as this Cold War unfolds, uh, but also to give you some of the background uh, behind. Uh, this phenomenon. But why are we talking about Cold War at all? Uh, recently in the UK, a number of ministers, members of the Tory party, uh, have been sanctioned by the Chinese government. This actually means that they won't be able to travel in China. If they have any assets in China, that they'll be impounded by the Chinese government. This includes... Uh, Ian Duncan Smith, who uh, wears this as a badge of honour. The Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, has uh, tweeted about this and you know, made sort of uh, grumpy noises about the, uh, the, chi- the Chinese government. And this is in retaliation to economic sanctions being placed on China by the EU, by the UK, but primarily by the US something that Donald Trump enthusiastically promoted. And President Biden seems quite keen on continuing. It's probably worth mentioning in this context that a couple of weeks ago, the chief BBC correspondent in Beijing fled to Taiwan. I'm not sure whether he was thrown out, but certainly he was feeling that uh, the... uh, the plainclothes police watching his apartment was probably the last straw. At the same time, the Today programme on Radio 4 has been uh, signalling that this is, a, this is a matter for its uh, propaganda activity. There's pretty well what, an item every day on, on the Radio 4 about China and often uh, doing that repetitive thing that they do, which signals to listeners that they are on the propaganda Warpath uh, going on about um, genocide in Xinjiang, and uh, this is very reminiscent of the the daily repetition, repetition, repetition of Jeremy Corbyn anti-Semitism. Jeremy Corbyn anti-Semitism. It's the same pattern. You can hear the directive dropping on the mat, as it were, from uh, Tory Party HQ, and then Nick Robinson gets on the case. And it's it, it, it's there as a, as a kind of a noise, as a clamour and as a clatter in the, the foreground, certainly here in the UK. Obviously, when something of this character starts unfolding in the UK, you need to look over the Atlantic because as sure as night follows day, the, the UK government's going to get its snout right up the arse of the, uh, the US government and... Uh, and play me too, in, in good poodle fashion. Somewhat prior to this tit-for-tat sanctions game, there was the, the matter of Huawei, a Chinese tech company, a mobile phone manufacturer, and a world leader in 5G infrastructure technology, who was banned from doing its stuff in the US, having already... 
have been instrumental in the you know the the unfolding implementation of 5G in the US, and I believe that Huawei executives has been sort of detained, I think, in Canada on behalf of the US uh, under the pretext that that the Huawei as uh, a China-based company will be actually spying on behalf of the uh, the the government of the People's Republic of China uh, through the infrastructure. At first, the UK didn't uh, follow suit, and again, you know, they they are sort of fairly well along the way with with the Huawei technology. Finally, but uh, the US, the, the UK government finally capitulated to the US and has also outlawed Huawei. Uh, recently, there was the, a summit in Alaska between upper echelons of the uh, Chinese government uh, and the and the the US. Very acrimonious. A lot of uh, basically trading insults. Who's got the worst human rights record? And it's obvious from that that China's not going to take this shit lying down. This is in the context of a huge build-up of American forces and Chinese forces in the South China Sea. South China Sea is crucial to China. It's a primary trade route for China. Uh, Johnson in the UK responds by sending... Uh, a UK aircraft carrier. I think the UK might have one or two aircraft carriers. The last I heard that these aircraft carriers, though they're state of the art, there are no aeroplanes for them. And it's, you know, again, this is just gesture politics in the past of the UK. It's just the UK government getting its snout up um, the US's arse. Uh, all this in the context, so it's just, just hinted at, of the kind of lurid propaganda uh, and denials and toing and froing uh, about what actually is going down in Xinjiang, vis-a-vis the uh, minority population there, uh, the Uyghurs. Actually, the Uyghurs compose sixty percent of this uh, huge district on the in the uh, the west of China, called Xinjiang. It has sometimes been called East Turkestan. So, uh, of course, there's an issue around Taiwan, which again is being aggravated. Now, Taiwan is an island off the coast of China, about 90 miles off the coast, which China has always said is a part of the Chinese state. Historically, it's belonged with China through the various dynasties. But at uh, the end of the uh, Revolution Civil War, the Kuomintang, the American-backed Kuomintang, the uh, pro-capitalist faction, uh, retreated to Taiwan and fortified it. And so to this day, it has this kind of separate existence. China still claims it vehemently. At some point, uh, a couple of decades ago, the US recognised China's claim on Taiwan, but he's perhaps to some extent reneging on that now. Historically, the US has always supported Taiwan uh, and helped it to defend itself. Recently, uh, Chinese warplanes have been buzzing the uh, the airspace around the edges of t- Taiwan airspace, which is uh, increasing the temperature. I mean, we do have to be aware that there are hawks in the uh, Chinese government. Also, there's uh, shenanigans afoot in Hong Kong, 
who hear demonstrations, riots, and I hear today the imprisonment of a, a, a Hong Kong billionaire who's protested against the uh, Beijing's uh, tightening grip on Hong Kong, uh, particularly on its uh, reserving to itself the right to determine who can stand for elections into the, the Hong Kong Parliament. Now, Hong Kong, it should be remembered, was a British colony for a hundred years, and it was a colony. It wasn't a sort of a a bastion of, of democracy. It was certainly a bastion of capitalism. But under treaty agreements, Hong Kong has returned to China, which again has never relinquished its claim on Hong Kong. And uh, there are shenanigans there as well, uh, with all the attendant propaganda coming from, from all sides. So, unless you've been sleeping under a rock, China is in the news. And with very good reason. The fundamental background against which this Cold War is developing, I would say, is the ongoing decline of the American Empire. In case you think this is a rather bold and impressionistic assertion, I'd refer you to the uh, the work of Chris Hedges. Chris Hedges is a very fine uh, commentator, uh, historian, and uh, highly experienced foreign correspondent with lots of first-hand experience of the way in which uh, states can suddenly crumble into chaos. Uh, I think Chris was actually... Uh, present on the ground in Yugoslavia when all that went to shit. Having said that, the US is still effectively the uh, global hegemon at this, at this moment. Here's a little bit of background then to the uh, nature of United States hegemony. US hegemony was really consolidated at the near the end of World War II in 1944 at the Bretton Woods Conference which was held, uh, strangely enough, as a place called Bretton Woods in New Hampshire. US power had been growing prior to that uh, momentous conference, as the British Empire was uh, going into decline. I mean, basically, even in the 30s, the British were operating their empire by borrowing money from the Americans, and the Americans were making interest on the activity of the British Empire uh, prior to World War Two, and then during World War Two, the the US pretty well bankrolled in one way or another the uh, the, the British war effort with lend lease and so forth. But in 1944, at the Bretton Woods Conference, uh, it looked as though it was pretty certain that the the Allies were going to win the war and it was only a matter of time and that some decisions need to be made about the condition of the world economy and the management of the world economy, you might say, after the end of the war. It was decided at that conference that a World Bank would be instituted and that there would be some sort of regulation of world trade. Uh, John Maynard Keynes, the British economist... Uh, was one of the uh, the chief thinkers, uh, economic thinkers present at the conference, and he suggested that 
all world trade should be conducted in a reserve currency, which he proposed would be called the Bancor. The Americans resisted the idea of the Bancor and insisted that the dollar, the US dollar, the God Almighty dollar, would be the world reserve currency, and that the dollar would be backed by gold. This actually held until 1971 when Nixon withdrew the American economy from the gold standard. The dollar nevertheless remained the global reserve currency and it still pretty well is. After that you could say that the dollar was backed by US military might. When you consider that two countries which the US in its wisdom decided to bomb back into the Stone Age happened to be countries with large reserves of oil that attempted to sell their oil in another currency other than the dollar in fact I think it was the euro that they thought they would sell their oil you'll surely be able to see the point of how military power can back a currency. I mean, the countries in question, Libya and Iraq, both devastated, both completely ruined because they tried to sell their oil in euros instead of in dollars. Obviously, other reasons were given for those wars, like weapons of mass destruction, for instance, in the case of Iraq, which, with hindsight, we know to have been just a pure bunch of propagandist lies, just out-and-out lies. Now, why am I saying in this situation that US hegemony is declining, that the US empire is going through a process of collapse? Given that the US spends more money on its military the true source of its power, than I think actually the rest of the countries in the world put together a, a huge uh, military budget and increasing immense military power, particularly when you consider how many nuclear weapons the US is in possession of, and the fact that the US has around 800 bases worldwide. Well, we have to look no further than the rise of China. China has experienced the most extraordinary economic growth since about 1979. Uh, Deng Xiaoping, who was the most influential uh, member of the uh, Communist Party of China from 1979 until his death in 1997, instituted uh, massive economic reforms in China, including the setting up of uh, economic zones to start with, which allowed foreign enterprises to invest, which allowed free enterprise and a a market system. You might say a, a gladiatorial system of capitalism was instituted in China. There was a kind of a deal, you might say, or a contract with the, the Chinese people which said, we will let you get rich as long as you don't give us any shit about democracy and human rights and all that Western liberal stuff. There was still, however, a very large state sector. You could say that 
Deng had seen the trajectory that Marx outlined that socialism was could only evolve out of a highly developed capitalism and not straight out of a peasant economy which China was uh, prior to the revolution. Whatever the case with regard to that uh, <laughs> somewhat speculative thesis uh, China did grow at roughly 10% a year since 1979. And in real terms, that means that people's standard of living was doubling every seven years. And this has been going on since 1979. Interestingly, uh, Ch- China uh, did, did take a small hit due to the the pandemic in recent times, you know, the uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. But the first quarter of this year, 2021, the Chinese economy grew by 18%. Now, to put this in context, the Western economy would be very pleased with 4%. That would be deemed a boom. And 2% is kind of okay. You know, not doing too bad if we get 2% a year. China has had 10% a year for how long? Uh, 40 years. Slavoj Žižek makes a very interesting observation about this state of affairs. And it is that capitalism can function very well indeed under an authoritarian government, under a one-party system. And now there is a, a presumed natural relationship between capitalism and democracy by liberal commentators and theorists. And it really doesn't hold water in the case of China. The historical, objectively observable case of China makes the point for us. And you can see, actually, in the the move towards authoritarianism, both in the US and in other parts of the West, uh, and in Britain at the moment, very, very obvious moves towards authoritarianism by the Tory government, uh, might actually be understood as a kind of an envy of the scope that the Chinese Communist Party has for determining its economy and for making space in the economy for some pretty rampant gladiatorial capitalism. Now, obviously, the US and the uh, Western powers that tag along with it is challenged by this meteoric rise of of China in terms of its economic strength and its uh, rate of development. Here is a competitor to its global hegemony. And quite naturally, uh, a propaganda war is going to arise out of this state of affairs. Uh, Notwithstanding the fact that there is immense US investment in China and immense Chinese investment in other countries and particularly in Western powers. I mean, Australia is a good example. The Australia is a country with huge reserves of lithium and those lithium mines are actually owned by Chinese companies. And of course, lithium is now a strategic mineral that the, now that the world is trying to move towards 
green energy and electric cars, which requires huge amounts of lithium for the, the battery storage of electrical power. The obvious response of the West, and of the US in particular, is to accuse China of being an authoritarian one-party state, which actually it is. And uh, to remark on the lack of democracy and press that home as a, a weapon, you might say, an ideological weapon, and to go on about a concomitant lack of civil rights and so forth. At this point, I want to consider arguments put forward by Martin Jakes. Martin Jakes is a commentator I recommend to you. Uh, Martin Jakes is an old uh, British communist. He was around when I was a lad uh, doing Marxist stuff on the, the fringes of uh, UK political life. Uh, Martin Jakes has actually since kind of reconfigured himself as a China expert. And he does know his stuff, does uh, Professor Jakes. He has two academic positions in China, one in Beijing, one in, I think, in Shanghai. He's very, very well acquainted with China. Uh, Martin Jack tells the story of how he became a China expert, and it was quite kind of by accident. And uh, he did have to learn Chinese and, and so forth. But he's, he really is the uh, the dog's bollocks, I think, on things China. And uh, he's a very thorough and very intelligent uh, commentator. And one of Martin Jakes' things is to, is to say that it's actually wrong for us to attempt to interpret China in our kind of Western liberal post-enlightenment uh, framework or paradigm or whatever you want to call it. And he thinks that we should try and inhabit the uh, Chinese cultural framework to try and understand what's going on there. In his own attempt to do that very thing, he appeals to uh, Chinese history, the long, long uh, spread of Chinese history. China has the longest continuous civilization on the planet by a long way. I mean, some people might think that India is a competitor there, but uh, certainly both of these old cultures uh, do stretch back millennia. Certainly in the case of China, two and a half thousand years is yesterday, really. And Martin Jakes... Uh, makes the point that China is still, for all intents and purposes, Confucian, and that democracy doesn't figure in that mindset. I would perhaps take a little bit of issue with that. After all, Marxist-Leninism, uh, out of which Maoism developed, is a, a very Western way of looking at things. Uh, it's, it's dependent on the Enlightenment in as much as Hegel was dependent on Kant, and Marx himself was dependent on Hegel, even though reworking it for his own purposes.
we must remember that Mao, in this context, had, had quite an antipathy to uh, Confucianism. Confucianism is very conservative. It celebrates the family. It thinks that society will be harmonious if uh, people obey the rules and the rules should be very strictly obeyed and there are rules that are based around filial piety. You know, actually, honour within families, honour by children for their parents and so forth. Uh, and a sense of hierarchy and a, a very deep conservatism. And Mao was naturally antipathetic uh, to Confucianism. And the, you could argue that one of the purposes of the Cultural Revolution, which Mao precipitated, was to ex excise Confucianism from Chinese society. Now, there might be a question around the extent to which that, that was successful. Uh, but nevertheless, Martin Jakes has spent a lot of time in China, has travelled around, has two academic positions within Chinese universities, he's of, of the opinion that Confucianism still has got quite a, a, a lot of momentum behind it in China. And if we want to understand China, we need to understand that long, continuous culture back two and a half millennia, three millennia, more uh, even, and not to attempt to impose a Western frame, you might call it, or a Western paradigm, an Enlightenment paradigm of uh, democracy, egalitarianism, libertarianism, and so forth, upon it. I think that's an open question, but uh, it, certainly Martin Jakes is somebody I recommend that you listen to and study uh, he's written some massive books on on this matter and, and i do have a lot of respect for him and i do have a lot of trust for his his take on this matter there is lots of material on the internet on youtube in particular uh, featuring martin jakes and there was a recent interview between martin jakes and Aaron Bastani of Navarra Media, which is very well worth a watch, and you'll find this easily if you just do a search, and if you are interested in this, this matter. So, at this point I want to say, it's not too problematic to say that as far as the US is concerned, there is a challenge to its global hegemony, simply because of the rate at which the Chinese economy has been growing for the last 40 years. And, it's now, and the fact that it has now reached a point where China might well overtake the US in terms of GDP and the size of its economy. Now, moving on, I want to consider China's relationship with other states, with the rest of the world. The first thing that needs mentioning is that China's huge rise has been dependent upon US corporations outsourcing their production to China because China was offering in the first instance, when all this started to unfold, cheap labour. And labour which is much cheaper than American labour. 
The way this actually happened is that companies like Apple, for instance, would get all their iPhones and Apple Macs manufactured in China, but under license. They wouldn't actually open any plant in China. They would give Chinese corporations licenses to uh, manufacture the iPhones. And this was very instrumental in the rise of China in the development and the rapid growth of the Chinese economy. But there was a, a remarkable concomitant to this arrangement. American corporations, because they were outsourcing their labour to China, were not creating jobs in the US itself. Actually, this was one of the reasons why Trump became popular, because he sought to reverse this process. He didn't succeed in reversing it, but he promised that he would reverse it so that defunct steel plants in the Rust Belt and so forth uh, would be able to revive their, their industries and re-employ workers. Of course, there's a little bit of this happened, but not as much as he promised. I mean, the guy was good at making promises and not so great at keeping them. But the actual psychological insight that uh, people understood that their jobs were being outsourced or out offshored uh, to China was quite kind of sound. So there's a sense in which the rise of China has been purely balanced in the most direct way by the decline of America and the decline of American cities. I should note here that uh, Chris Hedges makes the point, having studied many empires in decline, that the first thing that goes when an empire is on its way down are the cities. The cities become impoverished. They become wastelands. They become dystopian places, and places which in which it's not very nice to live, in which there is mass unemployment, in which people do the things that they have to do to survive in conditions which are quite ugly. At the same time as China has taken on this role of workshop of the world, which incidentally was a role that the English Midlands uh, took on for the late 19th century, good part of the 20th century, It has meant that the US has become a market for China and Western Europe, of course, and the, the, de the so-called developed West has become a market for the Chinese goods. And you look upon pretty well any product that you buy and it'll sound it made in China. Uh, ironically, the uh, famous MAGA hats, Make America Great Again, the red baseball caps that the Trump uh, fanatics <laughs> like to wear, are for the most part made in China. So two things there, America has become China's market. America has become the go-to place to get cheap labour. And remember, corporations will always seek cheap labour. Pure Marxism here, you know, the Marxist analysis tells us exactly why this is the case. Because labour is the place where you can save on your costs, on your production costs. Uh, there are global agreements vis-a-vis -vis raw materials. Raw materials go at pretty well the same price everywhere on the planet. 
So your only variable in your production cost is labour costs. So if you can get cheap, cheap labour costs, as long as there is a market, you can produce goods and make the most profit. As long as you can sell the damn things. Now, given that Trump tried to sort of reverse this state of affairs, actually by placing sanctions on China or by putting tariffs on Chinese goods in the attempt to get American corporations to restart uh, production in America. China was bound to respond. The nature of that response is uh, quite understandable. Remember that China has been growing at 10% a year for 40 years. Thereabouts, Trump gets in, uh, tries to go for American isolationism and repatriating offshore jobs uh, in the face of the logic of global capitalism. This means that China has by now got itself quite a wealthy middle class and a wealthy working class that itself is wanting to become the uh, owners of nice iPhones and uh, nice cars and nice apartments. In other words, uh, the growth of the Chinese economy has created a, a large population of people with spending power. In other words, it's created its own internal market. So the, uh, the Chinese uh, planners in the uh, oligarchical uh, Communist Party are able to uh, use their uh, planning power to pivot the Chinese economy into one in which it's got its own internal markets and becomes less dependent on exporting its goods around the world. Notice I say less dependent, I don't say independent. Uh, China is still wanting to open markets up for its products all around the world. And I'll kind of turn to this in a moment and uh, explain to you how this is the case. But having an internal market is a wonderful buffer against a kind of Trumpian isolationism. And no doubt this is a good place to make the point that China and the Chinese Communist Party and the strategy that it took on in the late 70s under Deng Xiaoping has managed to raise 800 million people out of poverty. This is a remarkable economic achievement that's never been equaled in world history as far as we know. Uh, this reinforces the point that uh, Slavoj Žižek makes that an authoritarian uh, one-party state is probably better able to manage capitalism than a multi-party democracy, for instance. And this is no doubt the reason why certainly the US and the uh, UK have what, what are in effect uh, one-party states 
even though they have two pseudo-parties, which are really, as we say, two cheeks of the same arse, because they want to enjoy the dynamics of an unfettered capitalism and the degree of development that China has uh, demonstrated is possible. Now, I mentioned that uh, even though China is developing its own internal markets, it still remains committed to a kind of outreach, to an openness. And again, this is a dengist policy. The One Belt, One Road initiative is the perfect example of this uh, uh, Chinese initiative. The One Belt, One Road is a project a huge project of developing infrastructure all the way across Eurasia. The one road is sometimes called the New Silk Road and it is an attempt to build and facilitate road and rail networks between the manufacturing high-tech centres of China, Zhenzhen, right the way across uh, Asia and Europe, right the way to Rotterdam, and then obviously onwards into the uh, the British Isles, so that Chinese goods can be exported and that European goods can be imported into China. And it, there's also a suggestion of a, a a north south axis in which China will develop railways into Pakistan. Pakistan, I think, is going to turn into a cheap labour pool for China as its middle class and as its working working class demands higher pay and there'll be an imperative for Chinese capitalism to seek uh, cheaper labour and I think it may well move into Pakistan to do this but certainly there are plans uh, to have railroad connection through Pakistan right the way down into the warm water ports on the Arabian Sea uh, the one the one belt is to do with sea transport, which is why the South China Sea is so important, where there is an immense build-up of uh, American naval power. <laughs> uh, but through, in order to take uh, produce to Africa, and again, a warm water port in the Arabian Sea, in Pakistan, would be extremely advantageous to Chinese commerce for joining up with Africa and China is immensely busy in Africa and in a rather different way from the old imperialists it does try and create win-win situations in the in these trade agreements and I think I'm not wanting to say that the Chinese Communist Party is in any way perfect that China is Uh, a worker's paradise that it's an absolute paradigm of uh, wonderful reasonableness it certainly isn't governments do bad things even if they're not particularly authoritarian I don't have any rose-tinted spectacles to wear on this matter but nevertheless China is being very sensible, clever in its relationship with Africa for instance Uh, the same goes for South America So the One Belt, One Road initiative is huge. And China is well equipped, actually, to put this uh, project uh, 
into operation. Now, I'll just expand on this a little bit. In 2008, when the world economy collapsed, China went straight into a, an interventionist mode as a government and did a kind of a, a New Deal scenario of putting people to work. China couldn't afford to have millions and millions of workers out to work. Remember, this is a country with a population of 1.2, 1.3 billion. It couldn't afford to have workers out to work. And Chinese workers, contrary to opinion, are quite willing to go on strike and uh, may even go as far as uh, rioting when they're disgruntled. Now, in 2008, the collapse of the world economy led to collapsing demand for consumer goods, of which China was a leading producer. Amongst the New Deal-type projects that the Chinese government initiated, uh, one was the building of an enormous uh, network of high-speed railway. I think it's something like 30 or 35,000 kilometres of high-speed railway. So uh, they've already got the, the expertise and the experience in these the massive infrastructure projects. So Belt and Road could proceed apace unless, of course, China faces uh, very concerted geopolitical opposition. Martin Jakes's view is that this outreach doesn't have the imperialist character of uh, the behaviour of either the, the British Empire or the American Empire. And he does draw on the, the history, the long history of Chinese civilization, which has never in its long history ever been colonial. It's never gone to another part of the world and settled land and taken over land and uh, governed land. It's always remained within the, its kind of fairly steady borders. I mean, they do expand and contract a bit. And, uh, and in despite of having uh, huge naval forces at various times in its history, China has never done that. Uh, this seems to be the case, actually, with this current... Uh, reaching out of China into Africa, into Europe, into the, into Latin America. And it does seem to be based on, yes, uh, a desire for markets, uh, yes, a desire for a necessity to get, come by raw materials for its industry, and yes, a desire for some for, for, for influence. It's not totally altruistic. But the, the, there does seem to be um, an outlook which in deals and in trade you try and craft uh, win-win solutions and I don't think this is too optimistic or too uh, Pollyanna-ish about China and certainly China is very well aware of the fact that it is in competition with the global hegemon and that uh, it is rapidly rising to the position of being the world's strongest economy and it's not shying away from what that involves. And this means, particularly, that there is a, a gradual attempt on China's part to grow some alternative to the hegemony of the dollar, of the sole use of the US dollar as the currency of reserve across the world. Uh, China has been 
uh, mining and buying gold for some time and building up gold reserves. It, it recently, uh, last week or the week before, did a deal with Iran to buy $400 billion worth of Iranian oil over the next 10 years. Now, this is a godsend for Iran, which is under severe sanctions from the, the US. Uh, they, they are sort of uh, decades-long enemies, the US and Iran. Iran is a, a, an enemy of Israel, and Israel is an enemy of Iran, and Israel is backed by the US, and the US gives Ira uh, Israel eight million, eight, sorry, gives Israel $8 billion a year of aid, most of which is spent on military. So there's a very explosive situation there in the Middle East. And Iran, as I say, under severe sanctions uh, from the US. Uh, but China has said, no, we'll do it. We'll do a deal with you. And obviously they need the oil. And Iran needs the money. So this is, uh, you know, a win-win on both sides there. And Trump, in his wisdom, withdrew from the nuclear non-proliferation deal uh, that the US and the EU and so forth had with Iran, which is an attempt to control Iran's uh, enrichment of uranium. Uh, a process which can lead to the production of weapons-grade uranium, uranium-235, and and the uh, the spectre of a, a nuclear Iran. China, though, in making this $400 billion deal uh, for oil from Iran, has claimed that part of its reasoning is that Iran has done very well in sticking to the international agreement vis-a-vis -vis enriching uranium. Now, Biden uh, wanted to re-enter some kind of a deal with Iran over the uranium enrichment and to partly undo what Trump had done in that he withdrew entirely from it. But Biden has, uh, thought he's seen a chance now to renegotiate the deal and make it a little bit uh, stronger in, and more in favour of the US and perhaps more agreeable to Israel. Uh, but China has said, oh, no, they've done fine. We're going to reward them with an oil contract. So, <laughs> in a sense, they've, I don't know, they've uh, they've trumped Biden, if I can put it like that. There's a lot of ins and outs to this, and if you're interested, you'd need to look it up. Now, in the same vein, China and Russia have, have been in talks at very high levels. And... They're coming to agreements vis-a-vis -vis not using the dollar for, for trade. And uh, Russia's got lots of raw materials that China would like. And they're, they're striking up very friendly re relationships. And both, of course, are under sanctions from the US. Russia is heavily sanctioned by the, the US and um, heavily propagandised against by US media and US politicians. So it's a natural for them to team up. And I think it's only, only today or yesterday, that now, uh, to complete the, the picture, Iran has been having very friendly talks with Russia. So we've got Russia, Iran and China.
in a nice, cosy arrangement. And with agreements, at least nascent agreements, that they won't be using the US dollar as the reserve currency. So you see there's the hegemony that the US propagates through its currency is there being kind of sort of quite severely chipped away. And there's more in this vein. I recently found out that uh, Michael Hudson, who I would say is one of the most able living economists, is helping the Chinese government and the Russian government to find a way of trading without using the dollar, uh, but without allowing either of their currencies to become economically hegemonic. And it's, uh, it shouldn't, shouldn't be beyond the wit of man to devise a system in which the currencies uh, share the load, as it were. And uh, he's, he's actually, I'll say, he's working for the Chinese government on this very pro- project. Again, he calls it the de-dollarisation of the world, in which he thinks is desirable. As if that wasn't enough. Earlier on this year, uh, China and 14 other nations in the uh, Southeast Asia region signed a free trade agreement called the uh, Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, RCEP, which is now one of the world's biggest free trade areas with 15 nations and 30% of the world's population within its bounds. It includes countries like Australia, New Zealand, South Korea, Japan, which uh, all have some kind of military uh, alliance with the US at the same time as they are now belonging to this free trade area, which I think creates interesting contradictions and tensions for those countries. And uh, when, you, when you're investigating this kind of thing, always look for the tensions, always look for the contradictions. And if that wasn't enough, I think I'm probably going to mention in this economic context, in this China influence context, uh, vaccine diplomacy. China is engaged in vaccine diplomacy, unlike the so-called developed West, which is engaging in vaccine nationalism with countries holding back vaccines uh, for themselves and uh, not spreading it around, as it were, and perhaps being a little bit mean with patents and so forth. China is uh, sending doctors to many parts of the global south, as well as exporting its its vaccine. Uh, particularly in South America, China is offering vaccines, either free or cheap. Even to Brazil, despite the fact that Bolsonaro uh, is a sworn enemy of China and is prone to making racist m- remarks about Chinese people, nevertheless... China, in its wisdom, and I think it is wisdom, has, has offered Brazil uh, anti-COVID vaccines. And bear in mind that Brazil is absolutely in the throes of a very severe pandemic with its hospitals stretched to the limit and with a, a, an emergent strain that's, that's actually making young people, people under 40 and in good health, quite ill and killing quite a few of them. So there's this, this Brazilian strain is rather more uh, lethal uh, and infectious than the first strain that made its way around the world. 
Now, if you conclude that China is doing quite well in its uh, competition for hegemony with the US, uh, you'd be right. When it comes to the matter of technology, you find that this view is further compounded. Uh, Chinese technology is coming forward in leaps and bounds. They are very advanced in AI and quantum computing and blockchain and general uh, IT type tech. I mean, the chapter follow-up on this, a good expert on Chinese technological development, he's a guy called Winston Ma, who I think was educated in China at university level in technology, but I think he's now a commentator in the US. Look him up, Winston Ma, he's very good on technology in China. Now, it looks as though China has... Uh, leapt ahead of the West in quantum computing with a, an optical quantum computer uh, which can operate at room temperature. The quantum computers produced by a D-Wave and IBM, etc., uh, need very, very low temperatures to operate, and so they're sort of quite tricky to operate. They have to be down near absolute zero. But if you use photons, you know, like lasers, basically, you can do quantum computing at room temperature. Now, China's made a uh, uh, a bit of a, a song and dance about developments that it's made in that area. I mean, if you had a suspicious mind, you'd think this was a bit of propaganda that they're putting out. Not necessarily true. Just to put the wind up, the Americans. Because if this thing gets developed, you know, the American banks and the finance and Wall Street and the American, American military are going to have to sort of get their skates on with their uh, quantum uh, security, their uh, quantum cryptography. Now, such a thing does exist. There are all the university departments dealing with quantum cryptography. It's not as though quantum computing uh, will will be able to hack everything, but it does create a challenge. An interesting thing vis-a-vis the, the, the money question, the question of de-dollarising the the world. China is working very hard on uh, a government blockchain, uh, Bitcoin-like, but not Bitcoin, because it'll be a government blockchain, to place the uh, RMB, the Chinese trading currency, on the blockchain to facilitate secure and fraud-resistant trading. And... and, uh, uh, Xi Jinping, the, uh, the Chinese president, has uh, publicly uh, stated that the Chinese economy will be developing blockchain and blockchain types of technology to the, the, the highest degree that it can. It's all very interesting stuff. I'm going to turn now very briefly to the matter of the, the build-up of mili- military uh, forces uh, facing off against each other, US and allies versus China, and the potentiality for actual military conflict. In this context, uh, I have to note that China does have a pretty extensive uh, military capability. It doesn't have bases around the world like the US does. As I mentioned before, the US has 800 bases. 400 of those bases are uh, very near to China, and in a sense, of surveilling or attempting to police China. China has two foreign bases, I believe. 
I think one's in Africa. I'm not sure where the the other one is. I think there might be one in Latin America somewhere. Two small bases. Uh, both powers uh, have nukes. Uh, China's has three hundred, somewhere between three hundred and three hundred fifty nukes. America's got roughly ten times that amount. There is a lot of uh, war gaming in the US and exercises, and uh, I think. China is probably being very thorough in its defence militarily, I would say, and I think we can kind of assert with some certainty that that is the case. Uh, Larry Wilkerson, who's a very interesting commentator, uh, a sworn Republican, uh, Larry Wilkerson's colonel in the US Army, or colonel retired, who was Colin Powell's uh, Chief of Staff Colin Powell was uh, George Bush Jr.'s uh, war guy, uh, defence guy. Um, I mean, he's, he's remarked that Xinjiang, you know, which we're going to turn to in a moment, is the key to regime change. So the the US obviously has discussed the, the notion that it could affect some regime change in China. I think by now they will be realising that that that's a pretty tall order. An interesting commentator who, who I've listened to recently is a guy called Lloyd Goldstein. Lloyd Goldstein is uh, a professor at the Naval War College in the US, which is an official part of the military where officers are educated. and He's a military st- strategist and a teacher of military strategy. Uh, He actually heads up a department in the Naval War College dedicated to matters China. So he's an interesting guy to listen to. He doesn't mind speaking out in a personal capacity. And I've seen him talking to Aaron Matei, who is one of the uh, Grey Zone team. And Grey Zone will be hearing about in a moment. But they are very focused on debunking and exposing and untangling U.S. government propaganda, and uh, which it uses as one of its means of uh, assuring its global hegemony. In the in this context of Lloyd Goldstein talking to Aaron Matei. Uh, Goldstein uh, reckons that Taiwan is 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 a is a potential trigger point, but he thinks that if if uh, China decided to invade Taiwan and take it back into its direct control, and that the Americans attempted to defend that they would last two weeks, the Americans would only last two weeks. Uh, and I think he's he's a bloke who ought to know. Can I put it like that? And he's very uh, he's very concerned about the tension and the build-up, but it, it couldn't end well for anybody, really, should actual a hot war break out. But we're saying that, and there are, you know, a great amount of military force uh, active in the South China Sea. Uh, China has modernised its military very extensively in recent years. And to the dismay of 
analysts in the US, military analysts, it's done this whilst only spending 1.5 of GDP on, on military, in contrast to the US spending about 4% of GDP on military and a bigger GDP. Of course, the, uh, the China doesn't have to maintain 800 bases around the world and doesn't have any ongoing wars at the moment, unlike the US, which is still just about hanging in there in Afghanistan, still got troops on the ground in, in Iraq, and so forth. A good guy on this is uh, Vijay Prasad, if you ever get a chance to look look anybody up, who's very, very good on international relations. So Vijay Prasad is a Marxist historian and columnist. He's written dozens of books, very, very high quality, tremendous Indian Marxist intellectual and he gives a good analysis of the military build-up if you wanted to go a bit further with that. Vijay Prasad. Could all this turn into a shooting war? Well one certainly hopes not and I think not. I think sense will prevail but you can't guarantee it. it. It is a tinderbox and wars have a nasty habit of breaking out accidentally but it would be a real disaster for everybody concerned there's no doubt about that and there are a few contraindications uh, which I'll mention in my conclusion okay I'm going to turn now to my last chunk uh, uh, which interests me on this matter of a, a cold war on China and that is to the matter of propaganda now you're probably hearing it almost every day now that there's there are concentration camps in Xinjiang, which is a far western province of China. You you'll hear people saying, one million people in concentration camps, two million people in concentration camps, and now we're hearing three million people in concentration camps in Xinjiang. Uh, this is it's going the rounds on the mainstream media. Uh, Mike Pompeo, for instance, uh, who was uh, Trump's Secretary of State, was stating it like it was fact. BBC stated every day like it's fact. Even some of the, uh, the, the alternative media, like Democracy Now!, have been stating it like it's fact. And the trope is, there is genocide in Xinjiang. Now, if you investigate this, and I've spent a lot of time investigating this, it's almost certainly untrue. Genocide certainly is far too strong a word. This is the opinion of Lloyd Goldstein, who I just mentioned, a, a, a professor of military strategy working for the US military. So somebody deeply embedded in the system. It's the opinion of the World Bank. It's the opinion of the International Criminal Court. Um, two organisations, again, deeply embedded in the system. It's the opinion of Martin Jakes, who I've mentioned. And uh, the, the Grey Zone, uh, an alternative news channel with, with its own websites and so forth and YouTube, uh, has done a great deal of work on picking uh, these uh, rumours. And the truth of the matter is that there is very little evidence and that genocide certainly is too strong a term. 
and the concentration camp is too strong a term. The people who are really pushing this uh, and who, who, who are being um, taken notice of by the mainstream media and by uh, the governments uh, tend to be Xinjiang separatists or East Turkestan separatists. Uh, there, and there is a movement that, as far as I can see, does receive CIA backing and does receive American think tank backing and even American military back in in certain wings of that movement which is dedicated to separatism separating Xinjiang from the rest of China and forming in the region an Islamic state now there's no way the Chinese government's going to go along with that any more than the the British or the American government would go along with something similar but there is certainly there's no evidence. Um, given that there's no evidence, and given the seriousness of the accusation, genocide for God's sake, people are even using the term Holocaust and uh, concentration camp. How has this uh, piece of propaganda managed to gain such traction? And it does seem as though it's officially backed, you know, from the highest levels of of the the United States state, from the highest levels of its military-industrial complex. And the fact that the evidence is very poor has been uncovered by the Grey Zone, by Max Blumenthal, who is somebody I respect and uh, who's written some great books about the Middle East and is very uh, clued up about Venezuela, Latin America... And China, Ajit Singh, who is a a, a a colleague of Max Blumenthal's, also a professor, Ken, Ken Hammond, uh, who's, who's done quite a lot of detective work tracing the origins of the rumour, or of the slander, you might call it. And uh, both Max Blumenthal and Professor Ken Hammond have uh, tra- tracked the origins of this propaganda down to... Uh, two sources basically one is a very far right think tank in based in Australia called the Australian Strategic Defence Institute which is funded by uh, Raytheon and Lockheed Martin uh, two of the world's biggest arms manufacturers in fact Lockheed Martin I believe is the world's biggest uh, arms manufacturer and Raytheon uh, manufactures the famous uh, Tom Hawk cruise missiles so they're funding this Australian Strategic Defence Institute, as is the US State Department, which is the US Foreign Ministry, as it were. The other source is a character called Adrian Zentz, who is a German uh, seminarian, he's kind of some kind of theology professor or something of that order. And Adrian Zentz gets debunked, given that he's, he's, he holds some apocalyptic end times, uh, rapture-style beliefs. Uh, I mean, Adrian Zentz thinks that there's a, a correct way for uh, punishing children by hitting them, which is good for them, which he calls a scriptural spanking. So he can get some kind of measure of his character from that. He thinks that equality between the sexes is satanic. In fact, that any kind of equality talk or any attempts to bring about social justice is satanic. Now, uh, this is not to say uh, that 
Adrian Zentz might not occasionally come up with some truthful information. And there probably is a grain of truth in some of his accusations. But he's a guy that's that's busy, very busy, in fact, propagating the uh, the Holocaust of, of Uyghurs in Xinjiang uh, propaganda story. Uh, somebody like Baden Panada, who likes to debunk everybody, does point out, in fact, you know, that Adrian Zentz isn't all, always wrong. And uh, nobody thinks it's hunky-dory in in Xinjiang, given that there is a separatist movement and given that this separatist movement has on occasions uh, uh, set off bombs, including in Beijing, and that uh, adherence to, to this cause of run amok with knives and doing mass stabbings and that kind of thing. So th- there is a certain tension in Xinjiang over this matter. Now, the Uyghurs are Muslims, and of course Chinese communism is officially atheistic. The Chinese constitution should allow freedom of religion, and there are many, many mosques in in Xinjiang. And uh, of course, you can see propaganda movies, uh, which are kind of rather naff, put out by the Chinese with you know Uyghurs dancing in their uh, their nice national costumes and stuff, and they're so kind of obviously uh, poor, poor attempts, at least for Western eyes, to to sell. Um, China to the world as a as a cool place to live. Um, so I'm not I'm not going to again have any rose coloured spectacles about, about it. There is obviously t- tension there. Only sixty percent of the population in Xinjiang are, are Uyghurs. Uh, there are uh, some uh, other minorities, Tajiks, Uzbeks, Kazakhs, but also a large uh, contingent of. Uh, Han Chinese who've been there a long time. Apparently, at the the end of the the revolution, the Kuomintang uh, held uh, Xinjiang, but they surrendered peacefully and handed uh, Xinjiang over to the the People's Republic of China. And those all of those Kuomintang people stayed in, in Xinjiang, and their descendants are still there. Ken Hammond then has shown the deficit of evidence, as has uh, Max Blumenthal. I mean, Max Blumenthal makes the point that Adrian Zentz never uh, submits his uh, writings to respectable academic uh, publications, and his work is never peer-reviewed. And there's a guy called Bay Area 415 who goes anonymously on the on the internet with it wearing a mask, who claims he's a US attorney, he certainly sounds like an American, who claims that, uh, he, he, well, he does in fact, uh, in his uh, broadcast, go through Adrian Zentz's subnotes and notes and references with a minute tooth comb and shows that Adrian Zentz will give a reference, but it's very, he's very selective about what he picks out of it. It's never comprehensive, and in fact, his, his material is objectively bunk, you know. And uh, the fact that the guy is a complete and absolute crackpot, um, I suppose, shouldn't uh, tempt us into ad hominem attacks. But I mean, I, I don't know. Would you trust anybody who thinks in that way? I, I kind of find it very difficult. I mean, I, I do. I have looked at uh, other material, material that is pro the Holocaust in Xinjiang uh, story, particularly a certain Rushan Abbas, 
and uh, I, I don't find that people like Rushanga Abbas are, are, are particularly plausible. So, I mean, my conclusion is that the, the Xinjiang Holocaust genocide story is, is in pretty much the same league as the weapons of mass destruction story that we were sold to justify an absolutely terrible war in Iraq which killed half a million of people and, and, and made the, the Middle East an even more dangerous place than it already was. The other thing you get with the propaganda is a resurrection of the very, very old racist trope that was alive in Europe and in the US in the last century and the century before, which is the view of China as the yellow peril, as a, as a dangerous other. And when you heard Trump going on about China virus, China virus, you know, as Wuhan flu, as, as just a slander, basically, when he would be talking about COVID-19, you, you, what he was trying to do there was to resonate with the the memory I suppose it is by now of the yellow peril of the, the, the of a subterranean racist attitude against China so that's there in the uh, concoction too so I'm saying all, all, all that but it's very interesting and that this morning in fact there was an announcement which makes you take kind of a fresh view of all of this material that I've just tried to present to you. Now, a few days ago, John Kerry, who is the US government climate envoy and has famously worked on climate for the US government, particularly at the Paris uh, meetings, which resulted in the Paris Accord, uh, went to Shanghai to speak with very high officials uh, from the Chinese government about climate change and about how these two, the world's two biggest polluters, the world's two biggest emitters of carbon dioxide, could cooperate on uh, tackling climate change in a very positive way. And we've had all this kind of cyber-rattling and all of this propaganda against China from the US and the West in general. And yet there's this very polite meeting going on because the world is going to go up in flames if nothing's done about carbon dioxide emissions. And today, I think it was this morning even, there was a, a communique was put out to the world, a press release, whatever you call it, a joint communique from, from John Kerry and his Chinese counterpart, Xi Jinping saying that in very plain language, in a very straightforward manner, that the US and China had agreed that they would engage in class cooperation to mitigate climate change. Just like that. So there's the absolute willingness to be rational and cooperative right in the midst of all the cyber-rattling and all the propaganda, and you know, it's vicious propaganda. Also in this context, it's interesting that uh, President Xi Jinping uh, did meet recently, last week I think, virtually, uh, with uh, President Macron of France and Angela Merkel, Chancellor of Germany. So, I'm going to conclude by asking the question here. 
Who benefits? Who benefits from this? The, the way this situation is being presented. And I would say that the, 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 the oligarchs in the West, the capitalist oligarchs, benefit greatly because they are using China to create an external other who can be blamed and who can be used to arouse fear in home populations. This is the Cold War revisited. This is what they did with the Cold War between the Soviet bloc and, and the West. It's a tried and tested method of creating fear in populations, a kind of divide and rule, global divide and rule, by creating an external other, a threat, an inhuman threat, a yellow peril in this case. The other benefactors, well, they're not the other benefactors, but they're a, a branch, you might say, of the oligarchs. The military-industrial complex obviously benefits because they get huge contracts for more and more weapons. And whether a war is fought or not, they still benefit because there's an arms race. So you, you build a, a, a new series of weapons, a new series of surface-to-air missiles, say. And then the Chinese come up with something that, that renders those uh, weapons more or less useless. A, a defence is found against them. So you then have to, you then have to uh, go back to the drawing board and develop an even better weapon. Of course, this thing is escalating now into space wars, cyber wars, of course, which is huge. Uh, maybe battlefield robotics. And certainly I think the cyber is going to be huge. Uh, which is why uh, the Chinese uh, expertise in tech is viewed with such uh, dismay and, and fear in, in the West. And why uh, the West isn't so keen for China to become self-sufficient in microchips, for instance. So, yeah, the, the, the powers that be in the West do benefit from this Cold War, and particularly the military-industrial complex, which is right at the heart of it. You could say the military-industrial complex is the, the, uh, the deep state. And I'm quoting from um, a CIA whistleblower called Kevin Shipp on this. He, he described the military-industrial complex as the deep state. And all of these security agents, CIA, NSA, Homeland Security, all of these people is the shadow government. So these all this this power existing power structure benefits and the concentration of power and wealth in the hands of a few in the West, in Western capitalism, they benefit. And the military industrial complex which is you know, coterminous with, with a large section of the oligarchs also benefits in as much as it's going to get but more and more and more contracts for weapons, whether there's a war or not. And this is the game that's being played. I mean, there's a few little nuances that come to my attention over recent days. And one is that the military-industrial complex is now being joined or is absorbing some big tech companies like Microsoft and Facebook right now being incorporated into the military-industrial complex. And I think this is partly to do with the, the emphasis that everybody foresees in military strategy on uh, cyber warfare, on hacking, if you hack, hack your enemy's systems. 
you know, the, the, the military communication systems or, or maybe their power grids or whatever, you, 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 you know, you're, you're in a very good place vis-a-vis war. And uh, Microsoft, uh, I think, have been asked to supply uh, virtual reality visors for soldiers so they can, they can heat scan to see if there's an enemy around the corner and they can get satellite photos and all kinds of stuff in front of them on a visor. Uh, this will make those tech companies even richer and perhaps even more dangerous. As far as I can see, this whole situation is, is rather dangerous. I'm hoping that good sense will prevail. And the, the, the John Kerry uh, exercise, uh, I think, has shown us that there is another side possible to all this. And for myself, I think it would just be much better if we had mature and intelligent politicians. They would be uh, engaging with China, talking to China, talking to Russia, and uh, getting on board with the programme. But of course, they are bearing in mind, I think, our Western capitalist oligarchs, that the Chinese Communist Party, for all of its faults, and imperfections uh, does state as its committed aim its uh, long-term plan and they are quite good at long-term planning is that in 2050 China will be completely and fully socialist kind to nature zero carbon and very kind to nature and that the mass of the population will be uh, quite prosperous and able to live a very good life all probably about one and a half billion of them by then and I suppose it's even more alarming to the western oligarchs that the Chinese government receives a very high approval rating from its own people it's somewhere between 80 and 90 percent now I suppose uh, you're going to say or somebody like Roshan Abbas would probably like to say that well, they, they conduct their own surveys. Nobody's going to tick the box saying they think the government's doing a terrible job in case the secret police come round and get them. But this, what I'm referring to here actually is a study of public opinion in China conducted by Harvard University, which again is right at the heart of the establishment beast in the US. 80 to 90% of Chinese people think that the Chinese government's doing a good job. And 8 million people belong to the Communist Party, or actually members of the Communist Party. And I'll uh, just add here that in Martin Jakes' estimation, civil liberties in China are actually uh, pretty good. Uh, Citizens can travel anywhere they like, and they do travel anywhere they like, and there are good educational opportunities, uh, and, and so forth. So, we have to be... A little bit careful in our appraisals of what's going on. But as I said, the rational way to proceed in this currently dangerous situation is for the the uh, nations of the world to talk, 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 jaw, jaw, jaw. And that needs to be done. And people conducting analysis analysis of what's going on need to be very, very straight, very clear-eyed, and fearless. I hope that's been useful to you. I don't, I don't know whether I've covered everything. I've amassed an enormous amount of material. 
I've had to do a lot of thinking about some of these these issues. But uh, well, thanks for listening. Uh, if you're a patron, you will have heard a, a shortened and spontaneous version of this, one of our raw thought offerings that Anna and myself did walking round the hill. And this is an attempt to expand on that. And I did find some new new twists and turns in this story. And I expect that I'm going to now, I find it very interesting, I'm going to try and keep up with what's going on. And I'll update you every now and then. Um, under um, interesting times, and brackets China, perhaps we'll call this. Anyway, thanks for listening. Look after yourselves. Wash your hands and all that stuff. Lots of love. Make knowledge great again. Over and out.